Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. This is Leslie Allen, editor of Shift Magazine. And Alexa St. John, covering tech and suppliers. Joining us on today's podcast is Greg Brannon, Director of Automotive Engineering and Industry Relations at AAA, which recently came out with a report that showed how various automated driving assist systems work in real-world scenarios. And during 4,000 miles of testing, they found an issue once every eight miles. Uh, Greg will fill us in on the details in just a few minutes. But first, Alexa, I wanted to ask you about a story you've been working on and following a lot this week, uh, which is the ongoing uh, Uber Lyft uh, kind of quandary as to whether or not their drivers will be classified as employees or remain as independent workers. What's the latest and, and what have you learned during your reporting this week? It really seems like this discussion has come to a head in recent months out there in California, and some experts actually expect the conversation to continue elsewhere uh, in the country. But, uh, you know, for years, these two companies have classified their workers as independent contractors. Uh, Obviously, with that, they've been able to avoid having to provide full employee benefits and uh, now the, both Uber and Lyft are kind of campaigning for a ballot measure set for a vote in November uh, that would exempt companies like them, uh, as well as delivery companies, from requirements of this state labor law that um, is requiring you know, companies to classify uh, what's quote-unquote gig economy workers uh, as employees if they fall under certain stipulations. And so obviously this is a massive threat to the business models of both Uber and Lyft. Uh, Both have vocalized uh, even before going public that uh, switching to this sort of model would be uh, a major threat uh, to their operations. Uh, They've already struggled to uh, sustain profitability in the past. They've both been hit massively uh, by ridership losses as a result of COVID-19 and fewer people hopping into the backs of vehicles with strangers. Um, And so right now they're, they're really, you know, fighting tooth and nail as much as they can uh, in order to avoid uh, having to change their entire model. Uh, Now there's, you know, an interesting discussion coming from uh, Uber in particular, who has towed around the idea of uh, becoming a franchise model uh, to, again, skirt some of these requirements through this state labor bill. Um, but, you know, many of the experts that I've spoken to have said uh, that's, you know, purely a baseless threat. Uh, the logistics as well as the cost of having to switch to that type of model would be, you know, potentially as great, if not greater than the cost of simply just uh, reclassifying drivers as employees. Uh, Lyft has been a little more vague uh, with regard to whether they're considering that sort of shift, uh, but certainly an interesting part of the discussion. However, I just, I don't think, and most of the experts that I've spoken with don't think that'll come to fruition quite yet. Now, this whole movement toward classifying these gig workers as employees, it extends far beyond Uber and Lyft, as I understand, the goals to let's say you're a DoorDash delivery person or, and, and Pete, you were mentioning earlier in a conversation that we had about uh, freelance workers, freelance writers. 
That's exactly right, Leslie. Um, and, you know, this conversation has really been accelerated by everything going on uh, with the pandemic. I mean, consumers are relying on delivery services in particular uh, even more than they already had been, you know, six, seven months ago. And so uh, the question remains, you know, if we have essential workers delivering our food, delivering our goods or, or things that we really need at our homes, uh, and yet they don't have the basic protections of being classified as, you know, a full employee. Uh, what does that mean? What are the implications there? And uh, I think these conversations will, again, only accelerate further as the pandemic continues, as use of these types of delivery services or other, again, quote unquote, gig economy services uh, continues. All right. Thanks for that rundown, Alexa. Uh, in other news this week, you both may have noticed that uh, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety came out with a study that showed uh, automated emergency braking and forward collision warning systems can reduce uh, rear-end crashes involving trucks by more than 40%. I thought it was really interesting because it, it shows that these systems and this you know, new technology hitting the market can really make a dramatic impact on crash numbers. Uh, but on the flip side, we know from AAA that uh, there's still a lot of work to be done uh, in developing driver assist systems, automated emergency braking, et cetera, uh, because they don't always work comprehensively in real world scenarios. Greg Brannon from AAA is going to tell us about their recent work uh, and about both the, the promise and the real world current capability of of driver assist and automated emergency braking systems. So uh, without further ado, here's our conversation with Greg Brannon. Greg, thanks so much for taking the time this morning. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me. We're, we're really excited about having you. Tell us a little bit about this, uh, the latest AAA report that came out uh, within the last few weeks about driver assist systems and what you studied, what you found. Absolutely. Um, so this is the uh, the second time we've we've taken a, a closer look at uh, active driving assistance systems, and these are the the level two uh, AV systems as as um, the SAE would define them, and and there are five levels, and uh, and 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 you might know them as names like uh, Super Cruise or Autopilot or Pilot Assist, and. Uh, and, and so we, we wanted to get a little bit better look at how these systems performed. Um, and we learned a lot from some previous work that we've done in this space. And we learned the value of expanding the road uh, testing, the naturalistic testing, as well as um, we wanted to leverage some capabilities that we, that we have in the closed course. So, um, so we we set out on the uh, on a pretty robust test plan with uh, with five different vehicles and we're able to put on about four thousand miles of of uh, driving on the road and uh, and a, a few uh, closed course scenarios and and really had some interesting findings as we uh, dove into how these systems work. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, four thousand real world miles and testing is. Uh... You know, I think that's pretty significant in, in that it goes above and beyond pretty much anything that I, I've seen from a study thus far. Uh, and then also, you know, in those 4,000 miles, I think you found uh, those systems experienced some sort of issue once every eight miles. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and you know, it, it's it, it, the natural progression of how these technologies are developed and automakers, you know, work from uh, simulation, uh, you know, in their labs to closed course testing, and then ultimately put them on the road and see how they perform in those scenarios. And, and what we've seen is, is that, you know, things can work pretty well in the closed course environment. And we assume they worked well in simulation or they wouldn't have uh, let them go any further than that. But the reality is once you put them out on the road, um, the, the roadway is a very, very complex environment. Not only are you dealing with, with everything from uh, sun angles and inclement weather to, and, you know, worn road markings to other cars and just kind of the unpredictable nature of, of those things together make the, make the roadway, you know, a very complex environment. We, we think we take it for granted because we get behind the wheel and our, our brains and all of our senses help us, you know, navigate that, that roadway. But um, it, it is an, it is an extremely complex environment. And then, you know, compounded by that is that the, the sensor technology that that's out there today, it's really in an infancy. I mean, it, it, we're, we're, we're just at the beginning of the development of this technology, at least for the, the type of equipment that we see on cars today. And, and these, the sensors struggle, they, they struggle and they, um, they struggle with keeping, you know, in, in particular um, of those incidents that we found, um, you know, as you mentioned, one every eight miles, we found they really struggle with keeping the vehicle in the lane. And there's probably a few reasons for that. And one of them is that they rely almost solely on cameras to to help make that happen. If there's no vehicle in front that's the, that we can get a radar lock on, they're relying on cameras to see those road markings. And as a result, the cameras, just like our eyes, uh, struggle in some situations. And and so we, we found the vast majority of the events were related to that uh, that situation where the, the car wasn't doing a great job of staying in its lane. And that's probably an important distinction when we talk about the limitations of these systems, that uh, the, is the majority of uh, issues that you found was with lane centering um, or, or staying in the lane versus you're not talking about systems disengaging or, or are those two kind of interrelated in some fashion? Well, we, we, we actually found uh, some, some interesting things on, uh, on, on at least one of the systems, the, well, really across all of them, they, they would disengage. And, and it's an important aspect uh, to, to dive into a little bit because that disengagement is, is rather problematic, especially if the driver is not 100% clear that the system has disengaged. And I will just say that the, the HMI, the, the human machine interface on these systems right now are all over the place. And, and it, it is very easy in some situations for a driver to miss the fact that the car is no longer helping you drive. And, and that's why it's, you know, we feel it's just critically important that, that drivers understand that these systems that you can purchase today are assistance technologies and, and don't replace a driver at all. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a very important message here. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, Greg. I, had a, I have a Subaru Forester of my own, and uh, it mm-hmm. has the EyeSight system on it. And there was a day that... I was driving down I-94 here in Michigan and, you know, I, I had the adaptive cruise control engaged 
Mm-hmm. And maybe I had my radio turned up a little too loud, but, uh, you know, I thought I was just following the car in front of me and I looked down and, you know, I'm, I'm losing speed all of a sudden because it had, it had disengaged and I got no, um, well, if I got a warning, I didn't hear it because the radio, uh, you know, there was no automatic shutoff or anything like that. So to your point, uh, the systems that are on the road today are not like the ones that we may get sneak peeks at, uh, you know, sometimes on closed courses for sure. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of good work that's happening in the, in the autonomous vehicle space, but it's, it's critical to remember that what consumers can, can purchase today are not autonomous vehicles. And, and in fact, they have a good bit of work to do in, in terms of that, that human machine interface to make sure that the systems that, that are, are there can be used safely because um, it, it's it's very important that the that the driver remain engaged, and you know there's a, another kind of interesting aspect that, that we should probably talk about as well, and and that's the fact that that as these systems, you know, obviously they've got a ways to go. Once every eight miles on average is is uh, uh, and, and we'll say a low bar to start with, right, for these systems, but you know as they get better. Um, there, there is going to be this interesting balance um, that that will need to strike, and that's because as as the systems improve, and the driver doesn't have to in, intervene, uh, you know, any more than let's say let's say that eight miles goes up to ten miles, or how about twenty, or maybe even fifty miles a car may go without having without the driver having to do basically anything other than you know watch the roadway and and kind of gently guide the the vehicle. Once you get to that point, you know humans are lousy supervisors, and if we're not, I mean, look, look what happens uh, any time now that that we have a free moment. Most of us are looking down at our phone trying to fill that space, right? So as the vehicles get better, there's going to be this really interesting balance that needs to be struck about ensuring that the driver stays engaged in the task of driving. Because even even if they're better, let's say once every you know that number goes from once every eight miles to a hundred miles at, at that point at a hundred miles, it's going to be very important that there's an engaged driver behind the wheel. And, uh, and the, the systems really are not there right now to ensure that's happening. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that I, you know, we always think about the uh, Uber crash in Tempe from March of 2018 in the, in the sense that this was an autonomous test vehicle. Um, right. But what I think, you know, part of the findings from that terrible uh, crash really are, are exactly what you're talking about, that, uh, you know, in reality, this was a, a test vehicle and it needed an engaged test driver. And, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, one of the learnings from that is, is not just about how autonomous vehicles perform, but how, how humans have to stay engaged in the driver and assist system, because obviously the, the Uber test driver was looking down at her phone and, and you know, struck and killed the pedestrian. But uh, I think there's exactly that is a, a learning from that particular crash. You're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, we, we really believe that the, that the driver monitoring capabilities of these systems is going to need to improve dramatically if they continue to be rolled out in this, in this manner. If we were to jump directly from this driver assistance technology all the way to a level four uh, you know, fully automated system that may not even have a you know a steering wheel or brakes for the driver to engage at all. 
uh, or the writer to engage in that case. Um, maybe that's okay, but this interim place right now is kind of an interesting place for the automotive industry and, and the engineers that are, that are designing these systems to navigate. Greg, what is the latest with driver monitoring technology and uh, are there best practices in terms of using steering wheel torque or, or cameras? What's, what is the latest in, uh, you know, what are, what are some of the best practices in terms of how to go about monitoring a driver? Well, you can, you can see the, the differences even in the, the vehicles that we tested. We'll take the, uh, uh, the Telluride, for example, that would allow, let's say, almost two minutes with your hands off the wheel with, um, with no input from the driver. Uh, and the, the system would continue to operate and then, and then give you a warning that you needed to re-engage, which could be as simple as, you know, jiggling the wheel, the tiniest bit for that micro torque in the steering wheel. And that's a very interesting example of, of how that, that driver monitoring is being rolled out. If you compare that to, let's say, Cadillac system um, that ensures that the driver that their eyes are, are are forward and their head is not down. And at, at the very least, they are ensuring that the driver is looking out, out the front windshield. Now, the, you don't have any idea where that driver's brain is at that time. They could be thinking about what's for dinner or a problem they've had at work or a fight with their wife or whatever, but they're, their heads pointed forward at any rate. So you, you can see that that right now with these technologies, there's there's a, you know kind of a wide variety of of how they're trying to keep drivers engaged. I I think just like everything related to uh, ADAS systems, what it's going to take is sensor fusion. It's going to take cameras and inputs from the the systems, and you know at every every kind of uh, feedback mechanism that we can to make sure that drivers are engaged. And, and the more of that that we can do, the better these systems are going to be. If I'm going to play devil's advocate, is there an argument to be made that, um, you know, inherently these systems that invite complacency or inattention behind the wheel uh, are, are not a good idea? Well, it, it's it's uh, interesting because you know going back to our earlier dialogue about the, that balance between the system effectiveness and the driver engagement is is an, is a challenging one, right? So so while the systems may not be perfect, and it, it may be by by chance or maybe by design that the driver absolutely has to stay vigilant behind the wheel because the system is is far from perfect. And in doing that, maybe they've created a scenario that that keeps the driver more engaged. Again, whether by happenstance or or intent, it's it's really hard to know. So it it, it that balance between effectiveness and engagement is one that's going to be a really interesting uh, one to watch over the next few years. Greg, before I forget, I wanted to loop back uh, to a question about the, the 4,000 miles you uh, drove during testing and kind of that, you know, issue once every eight miles, you know, a lot to do with the lane keeping. Uh, is that a function of the cameras that you, you found issues or like what role did the uh, actual lane markings and the infrastructure play in that? If you can tell. 
Yeah, it's it's difficult to tell. I you know, rarely would the vehicle simply drift out of their lane on a perfectly straight, well-marked uh, roadway, with, with the exception of of sun angle. So as the uh, you know, just like our eyes, cameras rely on contrast. So if the sun is putting a lot of glare into the camera's lens, the camera has re is really struggling to you know contrast between the you know the the black line or the white line on the roadway, and. Um, but but rarely did we did we find problems kind of in straight sections. M mostly the problems were in things where there were uh, either a uh, a mild curve that was happening on the roadway, uh, changing in lighting conditions, like going under an uh, an overpass, uh, or um, situations where there was a, a lane that was being merged onto the road. So these, you know, in these scenarios, the, the vehicle seemed to kind of lose where it was for a moment, and sometimes it would guess wrong. And, you know, it's important to note that that uh, usually there's a, a fusion of sensors that are helping keep the, the vehicle in the lane. But if there's a vehicle in front of you, it'll often use the radar to sort of use the vehicle in front as a proxy for where you know your vehicle should be so if they triangulate that with the what they're picking up from the the cameras they can do a pretty good job but if you find yourself without a lead vehicle and uh and, and a curve on a roadway um or or certainly a roadway that that there's some kind of confusing or missing lane markings the systems are absolutely going to struggle and in some cases completely disable until they can then pick those uh, those markings back up i see it is interesting to think about uh you know it really is a fusion of sensors that's needed even for uh, you know a lane keeping assist to really get them to to work in you know an optimal way Absolutely. And, you know, our, our belief is that sensor fusion is, is going to be critical. You know, we've done some work with Michigan Tech in years past and published a, a couple of papers on the subject of, of uh, how the different sensors, whether it's radar and LIDAR, uh, camera, sonar, where they where they excel and then where they struggle and you know that none of them are perfect and it, it is really going to take the largest sensor suite possible to make uh, automated driving um, a possibility and and so it, it's it, it, it's a challenge that the engineers are really struggling with right now to uh, to use all these new technologies and in new ways. So, Greg, I know that uh, this recent testing that we're talking about, I, I think, was like largely highway driving. Um, let's turn a little bit to some other work that AAA has done within the past year. Uh, in a similar fashion, I think that you had a, a study of driver assist systems and how how they reacted to pedestrians, which is obviously more of a you know city or urban application. Uh, did did systems work any better? I know that's probably a general way to ask this question, but uh, any better in, in detecting pedestrians than, than lane markings? I, I, that is a general way. I'll give you a general answer. The, I, I would say our general answer is no. Um, and, and, and so, but that doesn't mean that these are not good technologies, right? And, and in particular, the pedestrian detection technology, we, we have to remember that, you know, what we're testing is the ability for the car to identify a pedestrian 
and respond to that appropriately and stop without hitting that pedestrian. And any time, well, even if the systems were only 10% effective in doing that, that means one out of 10 times that, that, the, that the vehicle would have encountered that situation, it stopped without any input from a driver. So I just want to clarify before we go into the details that it may seem we're being a little negative on the technology, but I want to be clear that we are, we are not negative on the technology, just perhaps how some of it's being marketed and, and sold to customers. Because you know th these systems absolutely should never be used as an automated system. They should only be a backstop to a fully engaged driver. And and so um, you're, you're right. We 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 did look at uh, at these pedestrian detection systems, and you know we found that um, even at 20 miles an hour, we we uh, had a, had a collision of some type 89% um, of the time. And at 30 miles an hour, none of the vehicles we tested were able to actually avoid a pedestrian. Um, the, the same, uh, that same result we found going around a right turn. And, uh, and then more, uh, more frustratingly, um, we, we tested at night as well. And, and none of the systems were, were effective at, at night at all. And the, the challenge there is 75% of the pedestrian fatalities that occur, occur in, uh, after, after sunset. And so if, if you were designing a vehicle to do the best, the, the most good with, uh, with a pedestrian system, they have missed the target, at least for the time being. And that is so hard to think about. On, on one hand, uh, you know, obviously these systems aren't making anything worse. So whatever, whatever savings uh, there are, if it's one in 10 accidents, uh, you know, that's still uh, a step in the right direction. But, uh, but you know, I, I think as a consumer, you, you hear that your car comes equipped with these technologies and you assume that they work. Um, so there's a disconnect there. There is, and that's a that's a very dangerous assumption, and and I think it's it it, it really speaks to how AAA would would you know, advocate that consumers use these systems, and that's basically that you should drive the car like it's not there, right? You should drive it like I do my '64 Volkswagen, <laughs> and 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 really never rely on these systems, but but hope that if you're in the situation where where the system may interact, that that it that it does and, and perhaps save some injury or, or, or loss of life. And, and so I, I think that's a really important message. Yeah. And I think, you know, if it's either the, the first study that we're talking about or this one, uh, there is this theme of how do you get a driver to, to not over rely on something that's an assistance technology, a, a backup as you, uh, as you called it, um, and not, not trusted essentially. Uh, and that's, I don't know that anybody has a great answer for that. Well, it, it, no, I, I don't think we do as a as an industry right now have a have a great answer for that. One thing that we would encourage automakers to do, though, is is ensure that the information in the owner's manual of the vehicle 
uh, reflects that that is being marketed, let's say, on television. And that's an important aspect, right? If you if you read the owner's manuals for these vehicles, which obviously we do in depth before we um, engage in any testing, so we we kind of you know we have a general understanding of when the systems say they will work and when they don't. If you read those, they they usually do a pretty good job of identifying the scenarios where where the systems won't won't perform well. And, uh, but the marketers somehow seem to miss that message. Um, and, and I can appreciate we're in a, you know, we're, we're in a, in a place where people are wanting to be competitive and, uh, and offer products that are, uh, you know, interesting and, and new and exciting to consumers. However, it should be, there should be a better connection between how they're marketed and, and how they're actually described um, by the lawyers. This is an interesting thought. So, you know, how did it, obviously with the systems that you tested having trouble with right turns, having trouble at night in particular, um, did that correlate well to the, um, you know, what the owner, owner's manual said that they would do and where they would and would not work? Yes. Yes, it did, in fact. And, and, but, but, you know, they, they don't always correlate real well with, uh, with what consumers are, are led to believe in marketing. So that's the, that's the challenge here. And, and, you know, we always brief the automakers uh, on, uh, on all of our research findings. And, uh, you know, we have uh, engineers that are executing these, these tests that are absolutely professional and, and, and we data log everything and high resolution camera. We have, you know, the accuracy down to two centimeters on where the vehicle is placed within the lane. And we share all of that with the automakers so they can, you know, continue to refine their systems and they understand exactly what we did and what the scenarios were. And, and that's important. Um, and, but whenever we talk to the, the engineers, they generally recognize some of the, you know, uh, some of the limitations that we are finding uh, in the systems. And, and because they're, they're on the front lines of having to, you know, work uh, to pull all of these sensors together and understand, you know, exactly how they work and, and sometimes how they don't. And, you got to understand that it's not it's not only a function of what the what the sensors see but this really challenging balance for automakers and engineers to achieve right now which is this balance between system effectiveness and uh, false positives and that's a really that's a really critical thing to understand that every automaker is balancing right now is to to try to minimize a, a poor customer satisfaction or even a dangerous situation where let's say a vehicle slams on its brakes and there's nothing in the roadway versus uh, missing something important, um, Susie on the tricycle and, and not hitting the brakes. So um, it's, a, uh, it's a definite balancing act that the engineers are having to deal with right now. Sure. And it's interesting to think about, you know, I'd rather slam on the brakes uh, if I if I thought there was a pedestrian or kid in front of me and, and have it turn out to be a false positive than than a highway application. That's obviously very different because there's probably not going to be that uh, you know kid on the bicycle uh, when I'm out on the interstate. But a but a false positive where I I hit the brakes and there's a truck behind me is a very uh, dangerous scenario. Obviously. Absolutely, and 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 there's also the the other balance of this, and in, in that. 
many of these systems can be disabled. So if a driver finds that the system is acting kind of erratically, uh, they have and will uh, disable that system. And in, in which case, uh, they have paid for, the automaker has designed and integrated a system which has become 0% effective at that point. So um, there is a, a very challenging balance and that, that has to be struck. Greg, what other research does AAA have in the pipeline right now? Well, one thing um, that we, we did want to mention uh, to everyone here is that uh, we, we've been working with the industry over the past year and a half or more now to, to standardize some of the naming uh, for these systems. And we, we believe that is a, a critically important issue um, because, you know, back to our conversation about how uh, how do we educate consumers on the safe use of this technology? Well, it has to start with being able to have kind of a common dialogue. And if a, if a driver uh, or a you know, potential purchaser of a car is going from vehicle to vehicle and they're looking to see, does this vehicle have automatic emergency braking? And they have literally 20 different names for that same system across automakers. It becomes very difficult to understand what you might be purchasing and what that system is, is set up to do. So we introduced uh, back at the beginning of last year, a, a list of, of common naming for these ADAS systems. And we've been lucky in that we have been able to get uh, several other large organizations to begin to use these terms, including now uh, NHTSA and SAE, and um, and we're we're really starting to see some momentum around that. So we're 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 happy that we've been able to make some progress there, but there's still much to much to learn and and a lot of work to do. And you know we really are not not suggesting that automakers uh, get rid of their marketing names, but. Uh, but a, a consumer should should know what they're buying when they buy Distronic Plus, for example. Um, and, and what that means, that means adaptive cruise control. And uh, we we believe that that it's important that consumers understand that that's the case. And 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 have uh, been very happy to to have um, Consumer Reports, JD Power, National Safety Council, and and others join us in that effort over the past twelve months. If you would have, uh, you know, forced me to take a guess at what this Tronic Plus meant, I, I don't know how long it would take for me to come up with the right answer, but uh, adaptive cruise would not have been on the tip of my tongue. Exactly. No, nor it for, for other consumers. And, and, you know, quite literally 20 different names for lane keeping assistance technology. And uh, it, 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 the list goes on and on. It, it, it's, uh, it, it's really challenging. But the, the good news is we're starting to see some momentum there. And, uh, and we'd really just like to be able to see the automakers begin to use those standardized names in conjunction with their marketing name if they choose to do so. Greg, before I forget to ask, uh, what's your background and, and how did you kind of get into this, uh, you know, position where you're, where you're overseeing uh, testing? 
Ah, well, I, I am a, uh, I'm, I'm a car guy at heart. Um, so uh, I, I grew up around cars and at the racetrack and in the repair shop and in my whole career has been, been spent uh, with cars. I, I love them. I collect them. I uh, test them and we, we talk all about them at work. So I, I'm, I'm the, the happiest guy in the, uh, in the industry, I would say, in, in terms of being able to marry my, my personal uh, love of, of vehicles with, uh, with what we do and really happy to have a, a talented team of engineers that, that uh, on, on two coasts that help us uh, um, execute this testing and, um, and really uh, working for AAA is a, uh, is a, a great privilege in that we uh, have the ability to uh, be completely unbiased. We do all this own, our, our own research uh, on our own dime uh, for the benefit of our, our 61 million members in North America. Uh, and as well as consumers at, at large, so um, it's uh, it, it's really a uh, a, a passion, and uh, it, it's great when you can marry your your passion with your job because you, know, you don't have to work every day. I think you mentioned a '64 Volkswagen earlier. What else is in the uh, collection? Uh, I've got a uh, I've got a '65 Nova that we uh, we do uh, some drag racing with, and uh, and a dune buggy, and uh, all all sorts of fun stuff. So, um, like the like the air cooled stuff, uh, have a, have a good time with those. Greg, anything else that uh, I'm forgetting to ask you uh, about? Whether it's your your home collection or some of the uh, important work that AAA has done. No, Pete, we, we really appreciate the uh, the the work that uh, you have done to to share some of this research and and really spread the word to uh, consumers and those in the industry about about some of these initiatives. We uh, we, we really feel at AAA that, uh, that that it's important that we continue this dialogue and we continue to to work as an advocate for for motorists in uh, in the U.S. here and, and appreciate all the support from. Uh, from automotive news and and all of the other outlets that, uh, that that cover the research to get the word out. So thank you very much. Great. Well, we can uh, you know look forward to seeing what's next, and uh, and certainly think that your work is important and and influencing the way these systems come to the market. So uh, thank you for your work and thank you for the time today, Greg. Thank you, Pete. Have a great day. Thanks, Greg, for that conversation. We really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Leslie, I'm wondering who we have coming up next week. Next week, we're going to answer the intriguing question of can self-driving cars stop the urban mobility meltdown? We'll go into what that is and talk to the author of that study. His name is Nicholas Lang. Nicholas Lang is the Managing Director and Senior Partner at Boston Consulting Group and Co-Founder and Director of the Boston Consulting Group Center for Mobility Innovation. He'll be joining us next week and we will see you then. 